How did a kid from the American Midwest grow up to be a voice synonymous with Canada's game? How did he become the man Sports Illustrated named the greatest sportscaster of all time? We'll be meeting this Hall of Fame broadcast legend as he skates off into the sunset. But first, welcome history lovers and hockey lovers. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. A special thanks to all our subscribers on YouTube, where you'll be able to watch my interview with today's guest. He's broadcast legend Mike Emmerich, but legions of hockey fans know him affectionately and very personally, simply as Doc. We all treat him like a friend or like our family physician. He's somebody that has watched hundreds and thousands of hockey games with all of us over the years. And you just really get to like him. I'm so happy to be able to share him with all of you today. And thanks to all of you who listen to the show, I'm able to speak to Doc myself. And he's a legend, he's a hero of mine. And so I thank all of you for helping to make this happen. Now, don't tune out if you're not a hockey fan or a sports fan, because even if you didn't grow up on Rocket Richard or the Hanson brothers from that Paul Newman movie Slapshot, you'll be drawn in by the passion that Doc brings to telling these stories. Doc brought that excitement to NHL action and Olympic games for 47 years. And I'm not just talking about the big moments, the things that show up on a highlight reel. It doesn't take much to make hoisting the Stanley Cup an exciting moment. In fact, Doc would usually hold back at those times and let the moment speak for itself. But Doc could also make the moments that were small in a game that maybe you thought didn't matter come to life. A fight for a loose puck in the corner, a penalty at a bad time, hitting a post. And of course, there was banter between periods with some of his great legendary in their own right broadcast partners. Now, I've been in broadcasting myself for 25 years, much of it at the very top with the number one talk show host in the country. And I've often wondered how the only media member inducted into the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame developed his skills. How did Doc manage to sound just as excited about the 10,000th goal he called as he did when he was a boy in the 1950s, watching the Fort Wayne Comets put the biscuit in the net for the very first time. We'll get those insights in his memoir. It's called Off Mike, how a kid from basketball crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice. Doc's career spanned almost half a century. And in that time, he worked everywhere. We call that a journeyman. He's, he's played for a bunch of teams, so to speak, only with a microphone, holding a microphone instead of holding a stick. Those places include ESPN and CBS, Fox, Sports Channel, MSG, NBC. He earned eight sports Emmys along the way for his talents. He holds degrees in his craft from Manchester and Miami of Ohio universities, as well as a PhD from Bowling Green, which you may have just clued in, is how he earned that nickname, Doc. Mike Emmerich is also a lover of all creatures great and small, in fact, he's donating proceeds from sales of Off Mike to animal charities. You can share Doc's passion as I do and help out animals by picking up a copy of the book. I am a former veterinary technician myself, so I'm certainly dropping the gloves to fight for this cause. 
I also used to produce a pet show on TV. And one of the greatest things was being able to highlight charities and talk to people who are making a difference. And I know that Doc would have been really a great guest on that show. And so I'm glad to be able to have him on here today, sort of in a visual medium, because you can watch us on YouTube. Now, as you know, Amazon.com gives us a portion of every dollar you spend when you click those links through at HistoryAuthor.com. So today, I'm going to be taking all of those proceeds, and I will triple them, whatever Amazon kicks us back, and I will also donate those to animal charities. So by buying Doc's book, you're supporting animals three ways, and you're also getting a fantastic read. So... If you love animals, it's another reason to pick up a copy of Off Mike for yourself. For the sports fan in your life, get a copy, and maybe even for that young person. As you'll hear today, Doc had many of those moments in his career where he had to decide what path he was going to take. And we can learn if we're young today, if you're out there searching, you're in college, you're just getting ready to go to college, and you've been locked down, you've lost maybe almost a year of your education. Doc can teach you and show you by example how you can still reach the very top. His book is just so great. I can't wait to talk to him. So with no further ado, now that we've laced up our skates and we've heard that starting lineup, please hit the ice with me and let's hear one of the most recognizable voices in all of sports as we go off mic. I am thrilled to welcome to the program somebody who I've watched hundreds, thousands of hockey games with. I've welcomed him into my home so many times and yet we've never met until today. He's Mike Emmerich, but legions of hockey fans know him as Doc. He's the author of the book and I have it right here and I let him know that I purchased my own copy because these are going, <laughs> the, the proceeds are going to animal charities. So I purchased my own. It's called Off Mic. How a kid from basketball crazy Indiana became America's NHL voice. Sir, thank you so much for making the time to shoot the puck around with the History Author Show today. This is great fun, and I thank you. You have so many books behind you, and I'm <laughs> flattered that mine now becomes one of them. Thank you. It definitely will. Well, I'm so appreciative. As you can see, there are a lot of books. Some of them are ones my wife has written, the ones right over my head various computer books. I have my cookbook back there. And so <laughs> I, it's only the precious ones that are here on the, on the shelf. And you're oh, certainly you. one of them Good. because I, I enjoyed it so much. As I said, I've watched so many games with you all these years. I feel as if I know you and that can be overwhelming for somebody that's in the business because we all feel we know you. And yet you of course haven't met us yet. And yet you're so open with the fans. You're so helpful with people that come to you seeking help. And that's, a story I think anybody, even my listeners who aren't hockey fans, those poor souls, as I said to you before, you know, people, I want them to get into hockey because I love it because it's a great sport and enjoyable. But you also offer so many life lessons here when you're climbing the ladder, when you're that young man in Indiana. And I wanted to open with something that everybody can relate to. And that's that image of you coming into my home and watching those games with me. And I thought, if you were a real human being, well, you are a real human being, but if you were really coming over to my house and you were bringing your Tim Hortons coffee that you were mentioning and sitting with me there on the couch for, for game after game, I would thank your wife. She would be the one that I would thank. I would, I would thank her first and foremost. And I just, I was just thinking she had shared you with us all those nights. You're up there, you're who knows where, you're calling the Olympics. You're not able to pick up the phone if the water breaks or one of the dogs gets into the garbage. She had to handle all those things alone. That's right. And 
I watched your United States U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame. I, I got this hat for the occasion. And there she is in the back. The cameraman can barely get to her because she's in a shadow <laughs> back there. She's standing quietly at your side when you get honored by the New Jersey Devils. And other than throwing that bouquet of roses in the air when they give you a, a new car, does Lou Lamorello. So I thought that's something anybody can relate to, even if you're not a hockey fan or a history fan. And something we can all learn from. So let's give her the first position and talk about how she's supporting you, how her supporting you helped you to reach the top, to chase your dreams, to go to all these different markets over time. Talk about her because anybody can relate to picking the right person and having them stand by you. Well, the first uh, chapter of the book deals with commitment and it talks about the commitment that hockey players get from their parents and that they make themselves to reach the NHL uh, from a very young age. And we've been married 42 years and that commitment uh, was made that long ago by her. Our first date, we met at a church function in this little town in Michigan of about 30,000 called Port Huron. And uh, very quickly, I had learned from her that she wanted to live in this small town the rest of her life, her family was here and all of that was understandable. Uh, we were both in our mid twenties at the time and we're starting to sort of formulate what our lives were going to be like, at least as we saw it. My ambition at that time being a, uh, an announcer for a minor league team was to make steps up the ladder and leave that little town and her ambition was to stay. So we dated for the three years that I had remaining before I got that first step up the ladder. And it looked as though that was going to be it. I left, she stayed, and uh, then we didn't get along too well without each other. And so there came the commitment. And uh, a hockey announcer for a minor league team winds up on buses and planes a lot. And the wife of a hockey announcer winds up at home. And years passed, and even though she went to work for the Philadelphia Flyers in the ticket office and was the first person at the window, the lone window in the box office, you can imagine angry Flyers fans with problems <laughs> with their tickets, uh, what this woman must have had to deal with in her time. But she worked there in the box office for a decade, uh, but at the same time was you know, allowing me to carry on my dream, even though it was with the Flyers or with the Rangers and radio and all of that. So anyway, when we reached our 40th anniversary, I figured up secretly that she had probably been alone 5,000 nights. And every once in a great while, I had to be alone in the house myself while she was either uh, with her brother in a difficult, or twin brother in a difficult situation staying with him overnight while he was ill or something. And I was alone in the house and I thought, how on earth has she done this? Times 5,000 times, but it's commitment. And that is an amazing thing for someone who had no ambition about ever leaving this area. We've been back here 25 years because with network, uh, commitments, you wind up being able to live where you want to. And we never thought we'd be able to come back here until I retired, uh, which would have been now, but we've been able to. And so I am beholding to her for any success that I have, because this job that I've had all these years requires great concentration. And if you are in any way distracted from that, you can't concentrate really well. 
and almost every game I've done, I have not been distracted. And much of that is thanks to her. And also, I'm sure that you, you have very much the soft voice. And I will ad admit to you that uh, as a Greek American, having grown up in a Greek family, we're very loud. And my <laughs> wife is Irish Canadian, and they are so incredibly different from us. And one of the things, though, that did bring us together was hockey. I mentioned to you before we started that this banner, I got that when the Devils raised theirs into the banner, uh, into the rafters at the Prudential Center. And this was her opportunity to come and see the team and, and experience that. She wasn't able to get here on her fiance visa before that when we were getting married. But when I first met her, she was so surprised often that I knew hockey. And she would say, you're but you're an American. You really know hockey. How do you know that thing? And I said to her the other day, I said, I have to tell Doc that I thank him for it. I took all the credit. Of course, I didn't give the credit to you, but I said, well, sure, okay. I've been watching from when I was a kid. I know these things. And wow, you understand it. And I'll tell you, that's what I want people to experience. And I hope that if anybody has someone out there like that, who you can't drag your spouse to a game, pick up off mic and, and, they'll really get to know the, the game through your voice because your passion carries over and hooks people in. And that was one of the things with Kathy, my wife, she would often be upstairs. She's doing something. And I would say, so-and-so is playing the San Jose Sharks or a junior game. I'd say, do you want to come and watch it? And she would always ask the same thing. Who's calling the game? Who's in the booth? And if I said, doc, she would, she would just sigh like she was slipping into a warm bath after a winter walk in Winnipeg, <laughs> as they say. And that's you nice. know that's cold, right? So, yeah. and because you'd make it interesting. And I know that Al Michael said you could call a cockroach race in the basement and make it interesting. <laughs> so, well, it'd be nice to have color coded cockroaches. It'd make it a little more accurate. <laughs> let's put it that way. <laughs> I appreciate Al's support. He's been very kind to me all these years. Well, a great guy. And I think that when he says that, he just knows you could throw you into any situation. You have so many of those here in Off Mic. It's, a, it's just a book that, to me, as someone who's in broadcasting, I appreciate so much that you keep your answers a nice circle often. You come right back to where you started. You keep them tight. I've seen you in a few interviews, and people will just toss to you at the end and say, okay, Doc, you have 10 seconds. You have 30 seconds. And You'll just wrap it up right then and there, add a little twist to it. That's something that you learn over time. And I think that when we watch, we just assume you're dropped into the chair and you just kick off your career, but you certainly don't. You, you needed to practice all those many years to, to get to that point. And it all starts back in this little town in Indiana. And those stories in the book I, I know I've heard you say that you didn't think those would be particularly interesting for people, but I'm glad that, that your co-author kept it, kept them in because that's the story you want. You want to see little doc running around on the, on the baseball field in the yard with his brother. And that's where we get to see this love of animals that you have. You dedicate off mic to all those who work to better the lives of humans and other creatures. And later in the book, you, you say that the sport is full of givers. And I know that, very well. Hockey is a community. It's not one of the big major sports. It's, it's always getting bigger, but it really is a family. You, you're out somewhere and you see somebody with a hockey jersey, even if it's not your team, despite what the beer commercials show us and despite the reputation that, that Flyers fans in particular might have, you say, hey, here's a guy who knows what icing is. And you just feel connected. You just feel like you had something in common. 
And so I wanted you to take us back to La Fountain, Indiana, which is spelt the same as Pat LaFontaine, which threw me a, a wee bit. And I wondered if that was tough for you when you ever started. But more importantly, we meet this German shepherd, Jill. And I don't learn her fate in the book. Obviously, she, the dog from the 50s is not with us anymore. But how does she start you on your path to broadcasting? And not only that, but this love of animals, this generosity, because that's a gateway to all of these things. And it shows the difference that a dog or another pet can make in your life. Well, the German Shepherd uh, and Boston Terriers were the two breeds that we had in our house all the time. Uh, large dog, small dog. And my parents raised Boston Terriers. And actually, for one, one stretch, they actually showed them. And there was one loving cup that when I was little, I, I used to walk around the house with that was a best in show cup for a regional little show that one of our Boston Terriers won. And when we moved to the country, we were able to have a little out of La Fountain, we were able to have a larger dog. So we then had Boston Terriers and German Shepherds. And some German Shepherds have the DNA that they're ball players. Not all of them are. Some are peaceful and some are more athletic. And Jill's number one and three were ball players. Number two was more of a, of a uh, sedentary dog. So um, Jill's one and three would go out and play football with us in the wintertime and baseball in the summer. And she would crouch down 10 feet from the plate and charge after any ball that was hit. In these games, uh, my brother and I played these games every day that it didn't rain. And we would make out lineup cards and we would, whoever was batting would announce. And whoever was in the field would chase the balls down along with Jill. And that was the beginning of uh, my want to be a baseball announcer. Um, I was probably eight, nine, ten years old and wanted to be a baseball announcer at that time. And Jill played a role in that. Uh, also, I think not only was a love of animals, but it was also the first time that you experience death. And my admiration for veterinarians is such that I read a statistic that veterinarians on a daily basis deal with five times more death than do regular physicians. Because um, if I'm allowed a question in the hereafter, it will be why do these creatures only get to last so long? Because they bring us such joy, right? Uh, but anyway, Jill's one and three were great athletes and were a contributor to, uh, to my wanting to be a broadcaster of baseball. And until I saw hockey at age 14 for the first time, uh, was there an epiphany moment that my ambition changed from baseball assisted by a German shepherd uh, to wanting to be a hockey announcer. And I love you. You described the image of the baseballs were all had teeth marks in them. Yeah, they didn't come out too well. And, and you know, a baseball that's new has a certain weight to it. But when it's got uh, a lot of saliva on it from a German Shepherd, it gets heavier as the <laughs> summer goes on. And so every once in a while, we'd go buy a new baseball just to have the feel of one that was the normal weight. Must be nice to have a dog that is in this classic scene in this little town. It's what, 640 people, not even 600? Yeah, it was, it was 627, I think it said on the little village limit stick that was at the edge of town. They would proudly post the population every 10 years. 
And someone told me it was in the 800s now, but it's never reached 1,000. And from that small beginning, and that's something that's throughout off mic here, just encouraging people to dream. Imagine being in a small town like that. It would be so easy to tell yourself, well, I'll be fortunate to go to an NHL game. I just took my father-in-law who lived in Canada. Well, not just because now everything's shut down, but he never had the opportunity to go to an NHL game. And when he came here to the New York area, we're fortunate we have three major league teams. So the Devils weren't playing the Winnipeg Jets. But uh, I said, well, this is the fortunate thing. We, we have an abundance. I said, we can go to see the Islanders or the Rangers. And usually the, when a team like that travels from the West, they will stay for a while. And they indeed mm -hmm. did. And so I was able to take them out to where I used to go with my middle brother. I have two older brothers. One's a Rangers fan. One is a Islanders fan. And me, I'm a Devils fan. I went to the state university for animal science, speaking of animals. And so we kind of mirror the growth of hockey in this area as a family, but it also gave me an appreciation for all teams. As I was just saying, I see somebody with a, a Rangers jersey. I don't have the urge to pull it over their head and start wailing on them. And I think that that's something you bring to the game. We would chuckle many times at, you know, Chico Resch, your longtime partner. He was so, so partial to the goalies and he would realize it sometimes after a minute. And, and, and you managed to keep that all straight. You want to see a good game. You want to see a clean game. You want to see the guys go out there and compete as the sport was meant to be competed in and not be, eh, not be angry. You know, we're, we're, we shouldn't be rooting for negative things, of course. And sometimes I think we can get into that as fan, forget that they too are human beings. But I just thought that all those personal stories are something that brings you to life for us here in off mic and your wife as well, Joyce, you're mentioning these animals and she gets big points there when she goes and cleans out the sheep shed. Is that what it was back then? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we would have, uh, my wife, uh, or my mom uh, used to raise Suffolk sheep and they were raised to uh, give to uh, area kids. She was a school teacher and she would give them to area kids to raise for 4-H projects. And so she would raise these and the lambs would go to the kids for 4-H projects. But the, the barn would only be cleaned once a year and that was usually on one of the hottest days of the summer. And so Joyce had, in the early years of our dating, this was the, one of the major, the major steps forward to go 300 miles from one city to the other to meet the parents. And so one of the uh, one of the first trips was in the summertime, and uh, she of course loves animals too. And she went out and met the sheep. And I said, one of these times I've got to clean the barn, or they've got to do it. And she said, well, let's just do it. And so the payment was a steak dinner that night uh, at one of the restaurants. But uh, she made a lot of points offering to do that because it was an awful job. It had built up over a whole winter time of straw and all of that. But hope no one's having something to eat right now. <laughs> well, from all those years with the uh, animals, I didn't think of that. But you're right. Maybe maybe mentioning shoveling out the stalls not the not the most fun. And I <laughs> I would I, I always say uh, that's a uh, that's a sign of love, right? Who cleans out the litter box? Who cleans out? That yeah, stall? that's it. <laughs> And I, speaking of partners, and I just mentioned Chico Resch, you reminded me of Abbott and Costello in the sense that Abbott was the straight man. And Costello, when they first met, Costello was much more established as a comedian. Here are these two New Jersey boys trying to really make it steeped in vaudeville. And 
Abbott is, is just in awe of him and Mr. Costello and trying to get the job. And he says, we'll have a, Lou Costello says, we'll have a 60, 40 split. And Abbott says, that's absolutely fine. You're, you're the name, you know, you're the big guy. And he says, no, 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 you're going to get the 60%. He says, what? I'm, I'm just Bud Abbott from Asbury Park. Why am I getting the, the big chunk? You're, you're a known name. He says, because comedians are a dime a dozen, but a good straight man is hard to find. And they continued that break, that split 60-40 for their entire career together. And I wouldn't say that either you or Chico are the straight man. You're both capable of playing it. But the importance of that partnership and all the broadcast partnerships you've had are very similar in their importance to your life. How do you develop that chemistry with a partner? How do you meet somebody like a, like a Chico Resch, like an Eddie Olchek? And when you, you go in there and see them and your book is so positive. I don't, I don't hear you say a single negative thing about, about anybody in it or no. a bad experience, but you, you need to make that chemistry. You need to find it just like pairing defensemen. You know, <laughs> those two guys are going to hit the ice together. They have to learn how the other one's going to think. How do you go about that with your partners? I don't know. Uh, it's almost providential. I think, um, I, I, I think it's, there, there's something to that because it's very hard to work like that with someone that you don't care for. There, there is this legendary story. Uh, and we, we occasionally, when I was doing games with Bill Clement nationally, we would point this out that the legendary partners from the Soviet national teams and later with New Jersey, Slava Fetisov and, and um, Alexei Kasatonov uh, were at great disagreement uh, dating back from their days on the Soviet national team and they wouldn't really speak and we would show them sitting together on the devil's bench and, and they, would, they would not speak uh, even at the devil's bench. It would be very hard to play as defense partners through all those years if that were the case, but I guess that was the case. Uh, but we're just fortunate in that I, I, was, I was given a lot of partners to work with that I really liked. And if you figure the raw amount of time, I was saying earlier that in 40 years, I figured that Joyce was probably alone 5,000 nights. That's a lot of time that you spend with your broadcast partner uh, because half the time you're on the road and then the rest of the time that you're at home, you're at morning skates sitting together, you're going into the dressing room after and then you're comparing notes afterwards with your producer together. So you're spending a lot of time together and it's a godsend that you have that many people that you've worked with that you really, really like. And you've just mentioned two that are among the, the finest people that you'd ever want to meet. And so I was just lucky. I had uh, 14 years with Chico and 14 years with Eddie Olchek. And, and you can really add more time to both of those because I was around Eddie as a coach, uh, briefly with Pittsburgh as a broadcaster when he was broadcasting for Pittsburgh and also when he was playing with several teams. And Chico, when he was playing for the Colorado Rockies, as well as when he was playing for the New York Islanders and other teams, as well as New Jersey in the early 80s as well. So I've been blessed to know those guys for probably 20 years apiece. You say God put Chico in your life when he knew you needed him, which I thought was a beautiful way to, to put it and speaks yeah. to your worldview and, and how you see things. He, 
he just has to be a great guy. Hey, you're going to speak with him and, and he can just, he can just talk and <laughs> has so many stories similar to yours, but from a different perspective. And you never, yeah. talk to, there was never any competition there or trying to outdo things. And that's not easy to get. I don't envy the broadcaster just dumped into it. Yeah. It was funny. He started to, uh, there, um, Bob Prince, who was, uh, was who convinced me to be a Pittsburgh pirate fan when I was a kid, uh, listening to games on KDKA, the, the pirates were going through a stretch where they would somehow or other be behind five runs in the ninth inning and win the game. And Bob would cap off the evening by saying we had them all the way. Well, the devil teams in the early part of uh, the 2000s, when they were winning championships, would go into the third period and be behind by two or three goals. And then remarkably, they'd come back and win in a shootout or win in overtime or something like that. And um, so we were never using the word we because we were a network uh, that was independent of the team. But at the end, I would say something like they had them all the way because it was preposterous when you would have a comeback like that. Yeah. And toward the end, Chico was, and I would say, and they had him, and Chico would jump in and we would say it as a chorus all the way. <laughs> yeah. And that was just typical of uh, how we, we saw things the same way. Or we would talk about the unseen hand because Chico always would say that Dick Irvin Sr., the longtime coach of Montreal and, and Toronto, would talk about the unseen hand that would change the course of a game. So there were a lot of things that over 14 years' time that we saw happening at the same time in the same place, and, and that was a, a lot of what made it fun for us. Uh, we hoped it made it fun for the listeners, too. It definitely was a blast for me. I remember those games and you'd hear people outside New Jersey complain about their style of play and DeRice will be called the trap and Lou Lamorello would say, well, that's not the case. This is just, uh, you know, go talk to my coach. And Jacques Lemaire would say, yeah, no, we're not, we're not trapping anyone. This is called defense that we're playing. And, and even though it would be a nothing, nothing game or a one, nothing game for fans and especially with you guys calling it, it would be, it would still be exciting. It didn't matter. And it's funny because people don't criticize soccer. They poo poo you. If you say, well, there's never a score and it's the game's three hours long, but for some reason, those devil's teams, people would look down on them and say, well, there's not enough scoring, but some years they had plenty of scoring. They had, a, they had quite a lot of scoring, but it was just a stigma. But listening to somebody call it, just like that cockroach race, you definitely were able to make it exciting. It's interesting that um, Dave Peterson, who coached the 1992 U.S. Olympic team that finished fourth, and they were supposed to finish eighth or ninth in Alberville, uh, admitted later when the trap became the word that was used for that type of defense, said, we played it in 92 over in Alberville, and it really worked for us. And yet I thought that team was very exciting. And then Larry Robinson uh, told me that in the uh, 1980s, Montreal would go into Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, where the Maple Leafs had a high-powered offense. And he said, we played it every time in there. And they'd just get so mad because we'd go into Toronto and we'd beat them. And, and everybody would be complaining about how the Canadians would come flying in and the game would be slow and, and the Leafs would lose. And he said, that's the one, two, two was how we played them when we went into Toronto. So it was nothing. It was not anything new at all. It's just that all of a sudden it got the label. So that's well, what it was. 
and when teams took it too far, there was that one Flyers game, right? They called the puck dead because they were playing one three one, and they were just sitting back behind the goal and waiting for someone to come in and challenge them for the puck. And it was a real long period that people didn't didn't much care for who <laughs> were watching yeah. the stands. That's not what I remember. Uh, oh, excuse me, you mentioned the Flyers. Uh, Stan Fischler was interviewing Bobby Clark during that period of time, the early two thousands. And Bobby had been uh, general manager and then president of the team and had been general manager again. And Stan, of course, uh, was not really known to be subtle. And he said, why do you hate the devils? And Bobby Clark said, I don't hate the devils. Uh, What people forget is that they played a style that worked for them and what people forget is they were one of the highest scoring teams in the league at the same time. Yes. <laughs> the trouble was that other teams copied it that didn't have any kind of offense and it dragged the game down league wide. That's what I didn't like. Okay. Yeah, they they didn't take exactly the spirit of what they were trying to do and have those guys who would take advantage of mistakes. That was the, the key thing or take advantage of a tired guy or a bad, a bad matchup. They were, they were just so opportunistic. And I think that's what people maybe who didn't care to see it, but who didn't watch the game, wouldn't realize that, Hey, that's a good matchup for them. You know, there's, there's all those guys that that would, would match up for instance, uh, was it Phil Housley who they brought in for, Gretzky when the when the Rangers had him and they wanted to stop him and he shattered him all those years in Calgary so let's bring him down here to to shadow him with us and you know then uh, Messier of course uh, got to him at one point then a little uh, persuaded him with his stick to the back of the head and he went down and and uh, the great one put the puck in the back of the net next thing so there are things going on there that I hope people will experience through your eyes here by reading off Mike since we can no longer see you on broadcasts but you'll still have a column out there, right, on ESPN. So that'll be nice. And I – no, go ahead. No, no. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, affiliated with uh, ESPN. They're going to ask me to do some video essays on NBC. Oh, okay. uh, that's about all that I have in the, in the future, and that probably isn't going to start until we have a season. Um, I don't know when that'll be. Um, the puck is still in the hands of a virus right now, not in the hands of a striped shirt with a with an armband. And when it gets in the hands of a striped shirt with an armband, I'll have a big smile on my face, as will you and a lot of other people. Yeah, when they when they brought the Stanley Cup back, uh, the, they decided to do the playoffs the way they did with the bubbles. What what excitement after so many months of just sitting yeah. around and having you, you play such a big part in your life. And it was great because hockey was our sport as, as I look at it and my wife looks at it and it's something you could share together with somebody. And I feel bad for people, as I said, who you can't watch a game with the person you love, share anything you love with them. Because for me, when I used to take somebody to a game before I met my wife, I, I noticed I was getting a pain in my neck after the games. And I said, why? And I said, it's because you keep turning to explain to that person what what's going yeah. on what why did the play stop what what's icing again what's the which was fine but so i learned to switch seats between periods so <laughs> my neck couldn't hurt anymore but these, these are all little things that make it such a community and i hope people will be tempted to pick up off mic and not just get the great stories but get that good feeling you get when you it you was know, see a dog somewhere cold outside or tell somebody we mentioned winnipeg to bash on the bang on the hood of their car and make sure there's no one sleeping under there no dogs or cats uh, that crawled under there for warmth at any time 
you bring that warmth of personality to everything that you do. And you brought it even when you went through prostate cancer. And that was 1991. It would have been easy to just keep it to yourself, not, not let anyone find out about it. Nobody was trying to track down you and your health. You're not, you're not, on, the, you're not on the roster of players that aren't, that aren't playing that night wearing the suit up in the skybox. But you did share it with everybody. And I thought that the reason you did was really important because here we have hockey fans and they're tough. They watch their players that play tough, that play hurt, that play with broken bones. I mean, listen to my voice as I'm saying it. I can, I can feel the passion in myself. And hey, I'm not going to go get screened. And since your Christian faith plays a large role in your life, I wondered how you answered that call when you realized that in Lou Gehrig's words, you had a bad break, which is how he puts it, which is so wonderfully understated. And he did not plan that, by the way. I have Lou Gehrig's lost memoir on the wall behind me here, his old columns that were just recently unearthed. But you, you chose to reach people in the stands and tell them, hey, I, I went through this. I got screened and checked out. And how did that affect people that you spoke to? Did you speak to people afterwards who said, Doc, I went and got checked out and, and I'm so thankful that you told me to, or a wife who says I could never get my husband to go to the doctor, but he had this, this pain or he finally went for a checkup. How did that feel? Why did you decide you wanted to make it part of your, part of your broadcast legacy, this fight against prostate cancer? Well, at that time, um, 1991, Medical science had not progressed nearly as much as it has now. Uh, Pierre Maguire was also very uh, open about the fact that he had had prostate cancer, and this was um, 2018. He spent one night in the hospital. I spent 16. That's the difference between 2018 and 1991. Um, so as a result, I was uh, working for the Philadelphia Flyers then, who were wonderful, as you might expect. They were wonderful at supporting me during that time. It was mid-season. It was obvious that there was an absence there. And so there was an explanation um, once I went through surgery and, and a long absence, probably four weeks before I returned, because it was far different than Pierre was, gee, Pierre was not gone more than... 10 days, I think, from the microphone. And that's just the difference in how treatment has progressed and how, how much can be done now that wasn't done then. But uh, if the number of people that have told me that they got screened as a result, and I'm sure that Pierre has had the same thing, uh, is multiplied by 100, uh, that makes all of us happy because that's a number of preventions that have taken place well in advance. Uh, it, it's um, beginning, it's a blood test. Sometimes it's a digital exam, which many people are uncomfortable thinking about, but five seconds. I mean, that's okay, uncomfortable for five seconds. It's not a big deal. But the good thing is that you know, and if you know, because it's a slow moving cancer, Many times it can be taken care of, as mine was, without radiation and without chemotherapy. So the best thing is to know early, as I found out, and uh, the best thing is to encourage other people to get the, uh, the routine tests that take place. I was 44, and that was the second youngest patient that had ever been uh, in the care of my physician, who is now retired and living in Chicago. 
So it's, um, it's uh, not necessarily any age group that specifically gets it. It's not just older people. Sometimes in my case, it was someone younger. Uh, so I just encourage people to continue to what you hear about the PSA test, make sure you get it and make sure you coordinate with your medical doctor about that, regardless of age. Partly because you caught it early. You could have not known you had it for years after that. You would have been older. So it was great yeah. to catch it early. And you had yeah, I had, a, I had a very wise uh, doctor named Warren Wolf in, in New Jersey who uh, knew my family history and that a couple of uncles had been diagnosed and doing the digital exam. He felt something unusual that he hadn't before. And he said, go to a different lab than you went to last time. And uh, it was then that they discovered it. Speaking of that toughness, I wanted to bring up the issue of fighting because you gave me a great gift here in off mic. And that's for a question because you said nobody ever asked me. And as soon as I see that, I say, well, perfect. I will ask him. So that wrote, this question wrote itself, but you wrote that no one ever asked you to explain why you chose to broadcast as a sport, something that seemed to view violence and mayhem as selling points. But I'm sure a few might have wondered whether the team's emphasis on brawling might have run contrary to my Christian values. Now, I don't see that. And I, I mentioned my father-in-law. He's a pastor up in Canada, and he has no problem watching hockey. And I think it's, a, it's part of a nuance in the sport that people, those people I was talking about where I'm getting the crook in my neck may not get at first. And it's obviously the game has changed. We know more about head injuries as we do about prostate cancer. But answer that question. So how do you feel? Did you ever feel like, hey, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be watching this? Or, boy, this is gratuitous violence. No, um, I, I didn't because at that time, especially in the, in the period of time that I was watching it, um, there was not uh, normally any kind of permanent damage that was ever done. These were just, these were morality plays where someone who was uh, more inclined to brute strength than skill was taking advantage of someone who was more inclined to skill than brute strength on the other team. And so that's the reason that you had anti-missile missiles that were employed by all the teams to counteract that. And so one of the attractive features of hockey to me back in the, in the 60s and 70s was that there, were, there, there was this morality play. Okay, so he did this to me, our guy is gonna do that to him. And that was a part of the theatrics of this beautiful sport that had all of this speed and skill and collisions, but could also wind up having things getting settled because somebody crossed the line. And all of that just struck me as part of the, of the, the, the wonder of the game, that it could all be controlled this way. Um, when it became mixed martial arts and there was the ability to actually hurt someone permanently with one punch, then I did not view some fights the same way that I did before. Many of the fights still are not harmful in that way, but some now can be. And so my feeling about fighting has changed over a period of time at the same time that fighting has now diminished greatly. Uh, and part of the reason is now that the percentage is almost 100% of those who wear visors. I think we're down to 25 or 26 players that do not wear a visor. And when you consider that all of this is now covered, 
unless someone agrees to remove the helmet and the visor, I mean, you've got not much to shoot at. You've got all of this equipment up here. So it's, you've really got to be mad and want to fight someone to run the risk of injuring your bare knuckles on plexiglass or on a hard helmet or on this glass here. And so the notion of fights um, do not take place very much anymore because the player protection is, is so much. So the issue is, I don't think as much as it was. And in terms of uh, my feeling about, um, about my beliefs, uh, I never felt that it ran counter to my beliefs at all. Uh, it was a rugged game played by rugged people, many of whom were devout in their faith too. They were not necessarily evangelical in how they expressed it, but they were, they were devout in how they felt about it. Uh, and so oftentimes they would never talk to you about it. They felt it was very personal and they kept that to themselves. Well, you didn't have guys that were sharpening the visor, right? Uh, I forget who this was, but he yes. took the visors and put them in the, put them in the skate yeah. sharpener. That's yeah, he was a former general manager of an NHL team who was, <laughs> who was running a junior team, and he, he decided that that was a way to uh, discourage or, or at least to punish another team, yes. <laughs> and the juniors, yeah. That's, a, that's not in the book, I don't believe, but that would be a yeah. story going over. No, it's not. Yeah, so it's not. Yeah, but you, know, you heard that story, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, it does play a role. I know in 2018, when the Devils were playing Tampa Bay, they were taking liberties, as we say, and uh, knocking them around. And you're seeing our guys, uh, well, my guys, I won't, I won't, I know that uh, you, you keep it a level head, but you're seeing the players, these younger guys, much younger than me now. So uh, they're going and they're complaining to the ref and they're, they're, they're not standing up for themselves as you like to see. And that's something that the game was self-policing back then, especially something like an overtime where they swallow the whistle and they don't want to call it. And I said, yeah, Hey, if you don't like somebody knocking around Taylor hall, somebody send somebody out there. It doesn't even have to be a fight, but it is a contact sport and physical. And I think that the fact that the game has progressed and grown and now everyone does wear a helmet. I think Craig McTavish was the last guy who didn't wear a helmet and, even Ked Danico said, sometimes that would encourage you in the early days to hit them more in the helmet because you figured, oh, they can't get hurt because I'm, I'm only hitting the helmet to get through to them. So yeah. I like how the game evolves. Yeah, no, it's still, there are still those occasions where just given the nature of how it evolves that night now and whether penalties are called or not, that uh, you still need to take it into your own hands. And there have been times that I've felt like the instigator penalty that is always tacked on plus the misconduct is, uh, is a little too much, but it still is the way that the league feels is best to police that. Where you go out and pay a guy back, you're always gonna get the extra two and the extra 10, because it's mandatory if you're the instigator in a fight, even though it may be well-intentioned and you may feel that it's justified because he did you wrong. So he gets five and you get 17. Doesn't seem right, doesn't seem just, but um, you took the law into your own hands and the league doesn't like that. There's a story that I came across speaking of fights, we're talking about player fights, but there was a 1978 story of fighting a game. You worked at the time as a spokesman for the Mariners up in Portland and involved coaches, Ed Johnson and Pat Quinn. 
And in the piece in the paper, you uh, one of the, the jacket got torn and you said, well, I don't know, maybe it happened coming over the bench. And I, I didn't know if that was you being a good sportsman or if you, if you, I mean, I'm sorry, good spokesman, or if you really didn't know at the time, those, those are real fisticuffs that would happen sometimes from those bench emptying brawls. Yeah. They weren't outlawed until 1988. And um, so this was, this was uh, 1978, 79. And um, the main Mariners in New Brunswick Hawks, New Brunswick was a farm team of both Chicago and Toronto. And they would later go on the following year to the Calder Cup final with Daryl Sutter and Ron Wilson and Bruce Boudreaux among future NHL coaches playing for them. So this was a very good team in New Brunswick. But they, uh, the Mariners were like the Flyers at the time in that they had two lines that could really play and they had two lines that could really play, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and the New Brunswick Hawks were the same way. And so they, they were just incredibly keyed up to fight. And uh, so the Hawks were two on one one of the Mariners down on the ice, very close to the New Brunswick end of the New Brunswick bench. And because the benches were only separated by one mere piece of plexiglass, Pat Quinn stepped up on the boards, walked down the boards, stepped onto the New Brunswick bench because he was going to help his player. And Eddie Johnston was standing on the bench and Pat shoved him over the back of the bench and Eddie disappeared over the back of the bench because he was headed down to get to his player who was being pinned over the boards, much like a wrestler was being pinned on the turnbuckle by two guys pounding on him. So Pat was there to even the score and make it two to two. And uh, so Pat wound up being flipped onto the ice. One of the New Brunswick players ripped Pat's sport coat all the way up the back seam to the collar. And so when Pat disappeared, uh, eventually uh, goes back after all of the things are settled, Here's his poor sports coat, still on, still got his arms up the sleeves, but the sports coat is dangling uh, from the collar. It's been ripped up the back seam. It was, it was terrific. <laughs> Old time hockey has. Yeah, it was. By the time they had it settled, there were a lot of guys that were uh, tossed out of the game, and one of the Mariner players during all the confusion was uh, was found in the New Brunswick dressing room at the stick crack, testing out some of the New Brunswick sticks. He was going to steal some of their sticks during all the confusion. <laughs> I won't name him. <laughs> you always seem when not to know, when not to name people, you always seem to know. It's nice of you to do that. And you don't name drop for, protect them. Hockey's about protecting. I guess that's what I did a little bit here by not talking about them. But I wanted to reintroduce you, tell people you're listening to my conversation with the man hockey fans call Doc. Mike Emmerich is here discussing his wildly entertaining memoir. Those of you watching on YouTube, the feed can see me holding it here and you can see it behind me. It's called Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. Nick Hershon, who's the author of We Want Fish Sticks, the bizarre and infamous rebranding of the New York Islanders, Asked me to convey his congratulations. See the fish stick logo, instant laughing. <laughs> and he brought up uh, game three of the 2015 quarterfinals, the Isles and the Capitals, because you called fan reaction to John Tavares' overtime goal the loudest you've ever heard. 
And that might just sound like a rhetorical flair in the mouth of another broadcaster, but you really have this memory. And so Nick wanted to know, I want to know about your memories of that jersey for one thing, but also how did that game stand out to you that you were, you were sitting there saying, I have never heard anything this loud before in all the 3,750 games that I've called? Yeah, I, I should qualify that. I, that, that, was, uh, that was a statement I think I made to Neil Best. It was the loudest I'd heard in, in Nassau Coliseum. And that was significant in my mind because I had heard a lot of the Stanley Cup Islanders of the early 80s there too. But it was a sense of release on the part of the fans that they were going to be able to keep the caps at bay. And that, that was a powerful Capitals team. And I, I just, uh, it was, it just struck me as one of the, one of the deafening moments in any building I'd been in. But at Nassau Coliseum, that was the loudest I'd ever heard. I think the consistently loudest building that I was in, and it's, it's hard to put decibels on this and to scientifically measure it. And uh, consistently loud was probably the forum in Montreal. Um, and that was because the only, the only amplification they ever had there was an organ and the crowd. But um, I did want to make sure that Nick understood that that was a statement that was made about the Nassau Coliseum. And that's not to take away from any of the other places I worked or the Coliseum itself, but that's the loudest I ever heard in there. And that was because of all of those wonderful, glorious years that the Islanders had. I'd never heard a crowd louder and never heard them celebrate greater in all of those times that I'd been in the Coliseum. And I still maintain none of my business, that Carolina would not have swept the Islanders uh, two years ago had they been able to play at least two of those games there instead of in Brooklyn, because that was an intimidating place, as the Penguins found out, for anyone to play in the Coliseum. And it was, uh, I think, easier for a visiting team to play the Islanders in Brooklyn than it was to play them in that madhouse uh, out in Uniondale. Um, but anyway, I appreciate him saying that and uh, uh, always appreciate thinking about going to games at Nassau Coliseum and hopefully they'll get some exciting times there one more year. Well, that fisherman logo for me, I grew <laughs> up as a, I grew up before it. I grew up, as I said, with my middle brother, he had season tickets. So we would drive from New Jersey out there to watch the Islanders games. And so I had great affection for that building. That's what hockey building should look like a hockey arena should look like to me because that's what I grew up seeing and there were so many great moments so many loud boisterous fans you always know where Long Islanders are, are cheering you know you're not able to just close out and read a book quietly you hear them in the bathroom you know when somebody scored it's just so yeah loud. And well that's I'm sorry no, it no, was always a thought that Stan Fischler modeled that fisherman wasn't it <laughs> yeah so like you said much better than the Gordon's fisherman anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Nick's book was just so, it just took me back. And I realized they lost a lot of fans by switching from the iconic old sweater. And I said, wow, that, that, was, that was me, right? And I felt like they turned their back kind of. And I'd gone to the State University of New Jersey and the Devils were doing really well. And I'm, I'm born in New Jersey. So I said, hey, let me start watching them. And that's how well, your loyalty shifts. Not that I, I don't still watch and root for the Islanders when they play, as long as we're not playing each other in the finals doesn't seem to be any harm and I can watch Rangers and Islanders games with 
my two brothers separately. So, you know, or together or whatever, but it's just such a fun game. And then when I went into broadcasting, I'm able to enjoy your skills when I'm watching and I'm able to worry a little bit for some people that they just get thrown in there and say, boy, you got a lot to live up to. And one of those is one of those skills you have is something you call guts broadcasting. And uh, for instance, when a wedding on ice goes awry at one point, people pick up the book and, and hear that one. It's just pretty great. And <laughs> I, it reminded me of Ronald Reagan as a baseball play-by-play man. He lost the feet of a game and he said, what am I going to do? I, and so he started calling foul balls because he figured it was the <laughs> only thing that wouldn't show up on the sheet. And so just until he could get the feedback and know what was going on and he, until he got to the point where he said, I think they're going to hit the record here for the number of foul balls. Hit, <laughs> but then he got the feedback. So name for us a historic moment like that, where you had to put the show on your back with your broadcast partner, let's say, and make sure fans enjoyed a moment, but never knew what was going wrong behind the scenes. Well, there was one where I knew what was going on behind the scenes that was odd. We knew, but for a while we couldn't say. And that was this one, Uh, Tampa Bay, Chicago, clinching game in the 2015 Stanley Cup final. The Hockey Hall of Fame is in charge of the cup. And they had a tradition, which because of this night is no longer done, of bringing the cup from a distant location somewhere in the city to arrive in the arena during the third period. So they can dramatically take it out of the box and our television cameras can show it. What happened was that night there were tornadoes, torrential downpours, flooding, the Kennedy Expressway going closest to United Center was closed. And yet this station wagon that had the um, Stanley Cup in it got sidetracked, had to take alternative alternative routes, uh, wound up at a gas station calling for a police escort because it had been sidetracked. And this is in the third period and it is still not there. (laughs) So Sam Flood, who is the guru of NBC Sports and was producing the game, said, Doc, we have been asked to hold an embargo here, and we may be breaking it, but I want you to know the Stanley Cup is not here. And it is, it is a part of all the weather outside. It has not arrived yet. The police are trying to help get it here. But uh, when I tell you to break the embargo, you can explain that the cup is not here. They're trying to get it here because of all the violent weather. But so far, don't say the cup is not here. But I'm telling you right now, it's not here. So at this point, the score was two to nothing Chicago. And we were, I don't know, eight, nine minutes to go in the third period. And now it winds down to under five minutes to go in the third period. And it's getting now closer to the end of the game. And, and then Sam got in my ear and said, okay, you can tell what's going on because the cup is still not here. And so 
when the game ends, the Blackhawks and the Lightning go through the handshake line. And uh, the Conn Smythe Trophy for MVP, of course, is in the same vehicle that the Stanley Cup is, so they can't hand out the Conn Smythe. Uh, that would have been great. And uh, finally, after the Blackhawks, you know, the, the Lightning have gone. They're down in their dressing room. And the Blackhawks are still on the ice hugging one another and, and uh, celebrating a little longer than most teams do without any announcement on the public address system that we are now going to have the presentation of the MVP. And finally, the camera catches this vehicle backing into the Zamboni area with, with the uh, Conn Smythe Trophy. So as a result, ever since that time, um, those trophies are in the arena, if not at the starting time of the game, shortly after the game starts, so that this will never, ever happen again. So that was one of those times uh, when uh, we knew we would have to penalty kill uh, at the end of the game until that camera shot showed us that the vehicle was coming in with the two trophies. <laughs> now, I always thought that the cup was there in the building because I remember, for instance, in 2002, when the Devils went to the finals, they said, well, they knew it was there and they were, they were ready to win that game to put away Colorado in six games and unfortunately end up losing that game, losing game seven. But I always thought it was in the building. That would be really the wise way to do it. But these are the things that you, you overlook. And that's what makes these sports, what makes them interesting is things going on that you cannot predict. This is why it's not TV, right? It's not scripted. Yeah. One of the things that happened, um, you know, with one of the many things that happened with Gary Bettman's uh, arrival as commissioner in 1993 was um, uh, an orderliness about the handling of such things as formalities, like in the presentation of the cup. The Rangers uh, got a little rowdy with the cup in 1994. And from that point on, there was going to be someone who was going to be with the cup at all times, was going to handle it with white gloves because it did have to have a lot of repair done to it. Um, and so from that point on in 1995, when the Devils won it, there was always someone with it. And the Devils were uh, on record in one of the books as being the first team to have everyone have one day with the cup. So it went to everybody for one day. But in 1987, back in the earlier years, the cup was, uh, was not tended to with that sort of orderliness. And it was the Flyers and the Oilers going for the Stanley Cup. And the cup found its way into the Flyers dressing room before game six. And Mike Keenan could point to it and said, boys, this is what you're playing for. And the Flyers won game six and forced a game seven back in Edmonton. And legend has it that of course, Mike wanted to have the cup back in the dressing room before game seven again, but it was not available. And uh, legend has it that somehow or other, general manager and coach Glenn Sather came up with the cup before game seven, and it was in his car during the day so that it couldn't be stolen and used by the Flyers. <laughs> so now... It is January 2020, and I figured the statute of limitations had run out on the story. 
And it was after a game in New York at Madison Square Garden. I, I saw Glenn say there and I, I said, you know, back in 1987, uh, is it true that on the day of game seven that you actually had the Stanley Cup yourself? And he laughed, <laughs> which neither confirmed nor denied the story. So if I ever write another book, maybe the statute of limitations will have gone further and he will tell me what really happened. But it does make for a great story uh, unanswered in terms of lore. Uh, and if I were Glenn, I think if, if, uh, if the Flyers got a hold of it before one of the games, I would think I would want my time with it too, regardless of what I did with it. It would only seem fair, wouldn't it? Well, I know that uh, when the Rangers won that year, they took it to McSorley's old ale house. And I interviewed the son of the fellow Bart there, the bartender. He's been there over 50 years and he filled it with their famous ale, the oldest bar in New York City. And uh, they dented it a little bit there. And I know the island, uh, the Devils, rather, when they won, they left it in an alley in Hoboken. And when I lived in Hoboken, I would always walk past this little dingy alley and I would think of the cup being there. And I these are just the things I associate with it. I also got to see the cup, watch how carefully they put it in that case when they had it on display in the Hoboken train station at one point, which was really nice to be able to be that close. And I know what you mean, what you mean about having it there. I could only imagine how it motivates players. You said if you ever write another book and you talked about the thick ream of papers that you have for this book. And Kevin Allen, your co-author, I didn't want to get, I didn't want to let the interview pass without mentioning him because editing that I, as I mentioned on the air, you're able to fit your story into a nice tight block and tell it. That's hard to do in writing. You have so many voluminous recollections of your life. And yet this book off mic, it defeats any attempt at skimming. You know, I couldn't just flip through and say, well, I don't care about that little thing about the pliers. So his, his, well, that's Eddie Olchek or did your, uh, did your forward, but Kevin Allen's name is that tiny name. And I've heard you say you lamented a little. So how did he help you keep those stories tight in the writing process? Uh, it's just expertise. He has it. I don't. Um, <laughs> as you can tell, my answers tend to be long. And Kevin is known how, has learned long ago how to write for deadline and how to write for so many words. And uh, he knew uh, what the length of a book would be because he's done, I don't know, 14 or 15 of them. And so the luckiest day I ever had was that day in 2017 when I ran into him after a press conference during the Stanley Cup final in Pittsburgh between the Penguins and the Predators. And I asked him if he would help me do the book. And he said, I will. And he even had the connection with the publisher Triumph Books. Uh, so he got me over that hump too. And that's often the hardest thing, as you know, uh, is to find a publisher and Kevin had connections there too. And so he, uh, he gets one quarter of the size of type on the front of the book that I do. And it should be the other way around because I had struggled for six years trying to do this. And he took all of those sheets of paper and then did three interviews with me. And the finished product came out in 18 months. Um, and that's owing to him. I had nothing to do with that. Speaking of editing things down, as I went through off mic, I kept a little notes, uh, kept a little list of how many things you collected over the years. You have 47 years of media credentials. You have Chuck the Duck, who Devils fans will recall. You have your Fort Wayne Comets ticket stub from that very first game you went to. And 
viewers who are watching on YouTube can see it over your shoulder there in half the frame, the old Comets jersey. You're your CBS football parka, thank you. So you can even pan. You can even do camera work, ladies and gentlemen. You have uh, the, the two of your – well, you have one Stanley Cup ring that you, that you have on. Uh, the others, you are kind enough in your generous spirit. Your brother and nephew have them. You even have that car that Lou Lamorello gave you. I don't know how it drove itself all the way back to Michigan. If you drove it or something. Been 125,000 miles just passed. It's, I've had it eight years, and it's wonderful. It's a wonderful car. So it seems like you don't throw anything out. You have a trophy case in the basement. How many broadcasters can say that? So now I mentioned your saintly wife, which I mean with all due respect, because I know most of us, our spouses, we, we like to audit their things, right? We go through and say, well, why do you need this jersey? You have so many jerseys. Or why do you need this box of things? And so she stayed home with all of your things. And I wondered, all, these, all this memorabilia you collected while you were living your dream, what will be, what will become of it? Will it ever go into a museum? Because you seem to just no. It'll probably it'll probably all um, be sold. Um, our our commitment is toward uh, hands on care of animals. One hundred percent of whatever we get from Triumph Publishing will go to that. It's not an organized charity at all. Uh, it is just as we see a need to help out uh, a local vet who. Uh, has a, a surgery that is coming up and the people can't afford to pay for it. Uh, we step in that way. People say, well, is there a charity that we can donate to? No, uh, if you're taking a pet into a veterinarian, why don't you ask the vet or ask the receptionist, does he have a secret fund that uh, we could contribute to for people that can't afford uh, a surgery or, or medicine that's really necessary? for their pet, because there's a lot of unemployment these days. Uh, there is one group that we contribute to that rescues wildlife as well as dogs and cats called DAWG, D-A-W-G, Detroit Animal Welfare Group. I mean, it, it extends to all sorts of creatures that uh, might have an injured wing or, or something like that that they take care of, and, and vets in our area of southeastern Michigan work with them uh, a lot of times for free at night in trying to help make these creatures so that they can be re-released into the wild. But in terms of organized things, we don't. Uh, we just like to quietly help out when we hear that there's uh, a situation that we can help with. So that's what our deal is. And so all of this memorabilia is, uh, and much of it is not valuable at all. However, it seemed to us that, um, I've got like 40 years of Islander guides. And to an Islander fan, maybe if all of those years put together might be worth something. They're in a storage unit. And, I, and once I get those all organized and together and find a platform to offer them on, maybe somebody would want to give me something for them. And then all of that would go toward this same cause. Uh, as I said, it's not, it's not a governmental tax deduction or anything like that. It's just a gift. Uh, to uh, somebody who might need help in making uh, a pooch or a cat's life better. That's all it is. Well, I can tell you, having been in animal hospitals and knowing it is hard to collect often and people do need help. And sometimes you have an animal and you say, gosh, I, I just wish that I could use some of the money that we're, gonna, that we're spending on an animal that maybe clearly isn't going to be able to make it on this little 
kitten that has another 20 years maybe ahead of it. And you, nobody goes into the veterinary business to be rich. It's not something where you make a lot. It's not, they're not making on par with what uh, human doctors call, will make. <laughs> so yeah. it, it is nice to be able to go in or if you know somebody and someone says, gosh, you know, ask them how, what are the bills like for your dog or cat? So I, I appreciated that. I'm going to be donating whatever I make. If people buy off mic through the historyauthor.com website, I'm going to be donating that to an animal charity. And I'm going to, I'm going to triple that amount because it probably won't be much. I'll match it. I'll make sure whatever it is, it's a nice donation. Thank you. You mentioned at the top, uh, Stan Fischler, when we started talking and you said that the man we call the Maven, that for a decade and a half, he had production meeting gags. And yet I noticed that you didn't mention any in off mic. So I figured I would ask you now for to share one of those with us. I think you might have two the, if you want to stay with us. Yeah, enough, um, both, it's probably free. a good way to finish, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, humor is, uh, Stan delivers these so much better than I do. Uh, but anyway, one of them is short, one of them is long. Um, two aardvarks meet on the jungle floor in early evening. Charlie Aardvark turns to Jack Aardvark and says, how was your day today? Jack Aardvark replies, it was good. I ate a thousand ants. To which Charlie Aardvark shoots back, since when are you on a diet? <laughs> okay. The other one, and I remember we were at the Meadowlands. I remember exactly where I was sitting in the press room the, the night he told this one. Because it's, you know, they're, they're all preposterous. So it's a football game between a team full of elephants and a team that has every other creature in the forest. And, of course, the lion is the coach, right? The lion is always the coach. Like the lion was always the conductor of the symphony that had all the animals in it in the cartoons, right? So anyway, it's the second half and the elephants are ahead 42 to nothing. So um, the centipede is along the sidelines for the team that has all the other creatures in, in, in the world on it. And he keeps yelling at the lion, put me in coach, put me in. So finally, you know what the lion says, well, got nothing to lose. So he puts the centipede into the game. So the, uh, the elephant quarterback drops back and, and throws an incompleted pass. It looks like it's incomplete, but just before it hits the ground, the centipede tips it, the deer catches it and sprints down the sideline, spikes the ball in the end zone for six. And so they kick off the ball and the elephants uh, receive and one of the elephants lumbers to about the 15-yard line, trips over the centipede. The ball pops in the air, and one of the anteaters picks the ball out of the air and lumbers into the end zone for six. Now it's 42 to 14. Anyway, the game winds up 42 to 35. The elephants win, but in the dressing room, the lion comes up to the centipede and said, where were you the whole first half? And the centipede says, coach, give me a break. I had to get my ankles taped. <laughs> I, there's something in the telling that probably I lost. But anyway, I remembered where I was when he told that joke. And uh, those of us who are football fans seem to like it. But anyway, so uh, we'll let Stan do the coup de grace for the day. Well, I really appreciate it. And I hope that people will pick up off mic. It's such an excellent book. And even if you're not a hockey fan, not a sports fan, 
Doc Emmerich speaks to people who are young today who are just starting out. If you want to reach the top of your game, if you want to be in your field and, and have some people look back someday and say, gosh, I, I just love that guy when they see you in an airport. And it helps to, it helps to marry the right person too. So that, that's pretty yeah. important. You know, you'll laugh. That's the old story, right? You'll laugh, you'll cry. You'll really just love this book. Doc, I wish you the best of luck with Off Mike. I really appreciate you spending this time with me today. Please enjoy your well-earned retirement with Mrs. Emmerich. And if you ever need someone to help you to shovel out those stalls, <laughs> just send up a player. I know that you'll have players and fans like myself and fellow broadcasters who they'll be right there at your door with shovels and sticks in hand. Okay. Dean, thank you very much. Say hi to the missus for me with all those books back there. <laughs> You're very sweet, sir. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Again, the book is Off Mike, How a Kid from Basketball Crazy Indiana Became America's NHL Voice. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. This time, there's something a little special there because I'll be donating all the proceeds we make through Amazon back into animal charities. And since Doc is donating all of his proceeds, I'll be making a donation and you'll be making a donation by buying the book. You could call that a hat trick because that's what we call things that happen in threes in hockey. Thanks so much to Triumph Books, the leader in sports publishing, for setting up this conversation today for all of us. And my sincere appreciation to Doc for giving so generously of his time. And not only today when we discussed his book, but just in general, he told so many great stories over the years. I know I'm not ready for his career to end, but after 5,000 nights without him, I think Joyce deserves to have her husband back and they could sit on that couch together and watch these games. Whatever Doc's career holds next, I know that he'll share it with all of us and I hope that he has a great retirement now. We'll miss him when he's not calling games, but it's time for other people to step up now and you be the next great broadcaster. And someday you can stand up there in the Hall of Fame with Doc and be side by side in your own style on your own way and have your own legendary moments. And that's something about Off Mike that I wanted to mention because it's an example of what history does best. It shares wisdom from the past and life experience so that we have a roadmap to follow in our present. We have inspiration those times when, say, we hit the crossbar. Take your best shot. It's overtime. You have a chance to win the Stanley Cup. You hit the post. Ah, so, so deflating. Or you end up in the penalty box for tripping. And you didn't even mean to trip, but your stick got caught up, right? These are all metaphors for real life. I'm not literally talking about a hockey game, although I'm sure there's many hockey players out there watching right now. But the important thing is to make each shift on the ice count. And I think by reading this book, that's certainly something that you'll be motivated to do. It's really enjoyable and special credit to Doc's co-author for helping him edit these down into a really solid, fast-paced book. I never felt like I wanted to just skim. And that's really a high compliment to an author, at least the highest one that I can pay. Let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, on Instagram or Facebook. And if you've enjoyed watching this interview and hearing me talk about hockey, don't forget to pick up my interview that you can find in our archives at historyauthor.com, iTunes, stream it at our iHeartRadio channel. That's with Nick Hershon, the Super Islanders fan, and his book, we Want Fish Sticks, the bizarre and infamous rebranding of the New York Islanders. 
Well, the buzzer has sounded, so that's it for this very special hockey installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us on our next all-new adventure into the past right here on iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you enjoy listening. Wherever you do find us, I'm so glad that you took the time to join us today and shoot the puck around with Doc. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. And have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.